everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. Here with uh, my second of the day, and uh, this one holds a uh, distinction in and of itself in that this is the first second interview with a guest that we've done on this podcast, and I'm glad that it's Gabe because I could talk to him forever. Uh, he came in with us about a month or two ago. We had a long discussion about his history in the Tampa Bay community, owning a record store, writing for Creative Loafing, uh, creative loafing working with the clerk of the court locally. Uh, but he, if you're friends with him on Facebook, uh, you know that he's just a vessel, a, a, a cornucopia of, of amazing information on music. And if you're not friends with him on Facebook, you should be if you haven't already hit the 5,000 mark, but you're probably getting close. And anyway, uh, let me see if I can do it today. Gabe Echezabel. Perfect. Oh, suck it. All Perfect. Right. I'm not going to say anything else for the entirety of the podcast. <laughs> no. So anyways, let me give you the setup for today. So I asked Gabe to come back in. I really want Gabe to be either a regular on the show or start doing his own show because he just he just has so much good information. And I, I, I consider myself somewhat of a uh, obsessive in the world of music, at least the certain types of music. But he just far surpasses me in, in depth and breadth of knowledge of music. And so it's always so interesting for me to talk to him about it. So for today's show, I said, please come in. He said, sure, no problem. I, he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, why don't you surprise me? So I have no idea what the subject matter is going to be today. Uh, and either I'm going to do a lot of listening. I might be able to participate a little bit depending on what the topic was. Um, but uh, I'm excited to hear. So lay it on me. Well, thank you. First of all, I'm honored to be asked back. That's a huge honor to be the first one to have a repeat The first shot. second. That's, that's huge. Yeah. That's, that means a lot to me. So, um, yeah, so you uh, let, left it open for me to kind of choose the topic. And one of the uh, kind of suggestions you gave me is something that's very near and dear to my heart, not just because that's where I hail from, but because I think it's probably, in my opinion, the most important epicenter of music in the history of music, and that's strictly my opinion. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about New York and okay. the New York scene. And you specifically hit me right in my wheelhouse. You said the New York punk and new wave scene, which is my favorite period of I music. I am so glad. I, 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 can I just tell you that your shirt kind of tipped your tip to the heads of Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers with a shirt on. And so I thought he was maybe sending me uh, messages <laughs> subliminally. So I felt it was only right to wear one of my heroes, Johnny Thunders, on my shirt today, since we're talking about New York, because to me, he is he epitomizes that whole scene and what it meant and the uh, influence it had. So, so, yeah. I, so remind me, give me a refresher on New York. Whereabouts in New York are you from? Originally? I am from Queens, the okay. borough of Queens. Okay, so. Uh, I, I have a, enough of a knowledge of New York City to be dangerous, but I'm also kind of an idiot in that regard, so uh, forgive me if I ask stupid questions. No, but it's okay. There's basically five boroughs that make up. Were there scenes in each borough? Did they translate from borough to borough? I know CB, where was CBGB's? CBGB's was in the Lower East Side, kind of further down from where Greenwich Village is, kind of way down... Um, almost to where the Wall Street area is. Right. So it's, well... It was, I've been there before, but not yeah. when it was a club. It was like a paraphernalia. Like you could buy CBGB shirts, right, but they weren't having right, shows right. there anymore. But Yeah, it was a pretty seedy spot. I mean, you might have gotten that vibe even regardless of when you were there. It still kind of has that vibe. Obviously not as much as when it the club was up and thriving, but um, it, it actually came out of sort of necessity. I mean, the club had been there since um, the uh, early 70s, and it was not the punk rock mecca, obviously, that it would become. Um, what happened was there was a place called the Mercer Street, Mercer Arts Center, which is where a lot of the um, kind of underground hip bands would play. The New York Dolls played a lot at the Mercer Street Arts Center. Um, uh, and what happened was there was a hotel next to it and it collapsed. Okay. The hotel collapsed, and it just demolished this venue. So everybody was kind of at a loss for 
what where to, do, where, to, to go. where yeah. to play uh, original music. Now there was another club, Max's Kansas City, which sure. was more of a restaurant kind of a. It was kind of a, a, a kind of hip underground place. Wasn't to there be a documentary seen? about the owner? Isn't the owner kind of uh, eccentric of Max's Kansas City? Am I thinking of the right place? I might be thinking of somewhere in L.A. But there's there's one documentary. I thought it was about Max's Kansas City, and the owner's kind of this effeminate kind of figure that's I, I could be mixing yeah up. Yeah, yeah it's it, it was a yeah it's an unusual place um so max's became kind of the 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 sort of the obvious place for this music to happen but eventually cbgb had more of the i think it had more of the vibe it had more of the kind of um the gritty vibe to it that a lot of these bands were starting to exemplify so that's kind of where it took off so i mean cbgb you said you've been there? Yeah. Okay. So I, I got to go once in my life before it closed. And, you know, if you're like me, when you were a kid or growing up, you would read books and read magazines and you would Picture envision what something these would places, look like. right? Oh, sure. That happened to me with um, in L.A. That happened with the Troubadour. Oh, for sure. I had always heard about the Troubadour and the famous Elton John show at the Troubadour and all these great people playing there. And I finally went there and I could not believe the size of this place. Oh, sure. I think the capacity, I saw the sign right as you walk in. We're talking about Troubadour or CBGB? Troubadour. Yeah. But, but I'm going to tie it sure. into CBGB. Yeah. Um, I think for the Troubadour, the capacity was like 250, yeah. 275, which blew my mind. Similar experience when I went to CBGB. You know, I thought here is yeah. the, the, no. the, the stomping ground of every band that is near and dear to my heart. This place is going to be palatial, right? Oh, my gosh. I, I think I hit my dump. head on the ceiling. Yeah. The bathrooms were like... Eight tetanus shots you'd need just oh, going into the bath. I mean, you just didn't go to the bathroom no. unless you were using drugs or whatever. Exactly. The bathrooms are hideous. Yeah. And, um, you know, the stage, looking at the stage, again, where all these folks that we're going to talk about have played, um, it, it's a very small stage. It's hardly elevated off of the ground. It's yeah. very small. And then one thing I noticed when I was there, there's really no, quote, backstage area right so everybody's just yeah. <laughs> I mean, to get to where the bands yeah. have to go to you know have a beer or chill out they have to walk through the crowd yeah which just blew my mind so you know i i guess i have my moments of boldness the time i went after the show i said well i'm just gonna walk back there you what know? was the show do you remember yeah it was a band it's a band called uh dead man walking and okay. what it is is it's a band made up of guys from all different bands okay. who kind of play together. It's kind of a revolving kind of a super cast. group. Yeah, and they yeah. just kind of play together when they have free time. Right. Like the 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 lineup that played when I went to CBGB to play there to see there was uh, Captain Sensible from the Damned, who's okay. one of my favorite bands. Uh, Slim Jim, the drummer from the Stray Cats. Okay. Um, who else did they have? Mike Peters from the Alarm. Okay. And a guy named Kirk Brandon, who used to be in a punk band called Theater of Hate. And then eventually, uh, like a rockabilly type of music, or a little bit uh, more. They do a little bit of everything. Nose, yeah. I mean, they do some of their own, some of the songs from each of the bands that they hail right, from. Right, right. Yeah, like Mike Peters did, you know, a couple alarm songs. Yeah. The captain did a couple damn songs. It's kind of a real loose, yeah. uh, kind of no scripted playlist type of thing. It was really fun. I it mean, sounds it's really awesome. Fun. Sounds yeah. amazing. And the captain is, you know, again one of my idols. So. We went to the show, and I was like, well, I'm just going to walk back there. Nobody said anything. It wasn't like there was security or like, hey, yeah. what are you doing back here? Where's your pass? I mean, that was just non-existent. So uh, the feeling I had when I walked into that place was like, this is like a neighborhood. This is like a corner dive bar. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what it is. It just blew my mind. And one thing, and I know this might sound silly, but one thing that really um, struck me was uh, the owner, the guy who'd owned it for so long, Hilly Crystal. Um, he uh, he was very much in touch. I mean, he was into the bands, and he booked the bands and all these things. But when I went, it was towards the end. It was right when the club was about to um, what year close. Was that? I went in, it closed in 2006, and I was probably there in 2005. Okay. So kind of close right to where. Right before the end, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing that struck me was <laughs> I went to the bar to get a drink, and behind the bar, there was an old-fashioned kind of a wall-mounted landline phone. Uh -huh. And right next to it, there was this old kind of crumpled up piece of paper. It said, for emergencies, call Hilly. And it had his home phone oh number. Oh, my God. So it was right there for the world <laughs> to see. It was right there. 
That's like, hilarious. That, that just epitomized the kind of the type of place that it the was. The type of place it was. So one of the things that kind of got me into podcasting, and I, I still listen to a lot this day, is uh, Mark Maron's podcast mm-hmm. WTF. And there's, yeah. there's very much kind of a uh, parody with the comedy world to the punk rock music mm-hmm. as far as the clubs that they play in and no green room. And yeah. Getting you know shafted by the owner of the club, getting paid and hecklers, and right? Just all these different things, you know. So there's this kind of world that you live in at these clubs, and it's very much kind of contained chaos, and and you know, and and, and it seems like it's kind of the bottom of the barrel, but it's kind of what you have to do to kind of get to where you want to go. It's great. It's the it, texture. It is. It's the it is. it's the it's the grime that just makes. So much of that music, great. I, and it, I know you have a list there, but you know, and it's just thinking about it. I think of, the, of, of course, the Ramones. I think of, uh, and not just CBGB, but we're talking about New York. Yeah. You know, Ramones, Talking Heads, mm-hmm. Television, uh, Velvet Underground, New yep. York Dolls, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch more that I'm not even thinking of, but mm-hmm. these are all the bands that I think I've always been. I've loved Marquee Moon. I don't know how I was introduced to that record, but that record to this day. It's you know some people think it's artsy and pretentious or whatever, but right. I can just put that thing on and listen to it beginning to end. It was oh. one of the first pieces of vinyl that I bought, and I just oh. love it. It's so brilliant. anyway. I don't mean to. No, I digress. No, no. You go ahead. No, please, you're fine. So um, what were the other clubs you mentioned? Uh, Max's Kansas City CBGB were those the big two, or are there any those, others that kind of? Those were the big two. And, and was were they geographically located near each other? Not too far away from okay. each other. Yeah, yeah. And so from where you grew up, what did it take for you to get from Queens to down there? Well, yeah. now keep in mind, I was very young when I moved away. Okay. I was like six okay. when I left New okay, York, so. so it was a non-entity, sure. you know, for me. Right. Uh, but from you know, from where I lived in Queens, it probably would have taken me, you know, maybe two subway rides to get there. Uh, you know. So. Gotcha. And I'm trying to. I always like to kind of figure out. You know, one of the interviews that I had was, and I think I might have, I might have brought this up with you when I spoke with you. But one of the uh, guys that was on my show before, his name is Pat Clemowitz. She's played in uh, local bands, The Hip Abduction and Dan Field. He's a mm-hmm. doctor. But we were talking about how important the geography of a delta is in in creating new forms of music because oh, yeah. it's a meeting point for different villages, for different cultures, mm-hmm. for different t- ways of life. You know, so new things are kind of formed at deltas, and so not a, not a delta per se, but what do you think were the ingredients that led to that kind of becoming what it was? I don't really know kind of the order that things happen. Obviously, I know there's a big art scene. I know there's Studio 54. I know there's Andy Warhol. I don't know what kind of the jumping off point was for that stuff. Well, I think, I mean, like I mentioned before, you know, I'm obviously very um, big on the Velvet Underground as far as influence. But I think what they did for for the scene there was they just kind of opened the doors for people to be a little freer and not really um, uh, feel like they had to fit into a specific box or follow conventions. So I think what they did was they influenced all these people in different ways. So you had, you know, you had Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine who, you know, made up television originally. And those guys were like literary. I mean, they were like professors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were so well-versed in poetry and literature, which, you know, you wouldn't expect uh, from punk or from new the wave. guys sure, who yeah. started the scene. So you had those guys and then who eventually, you know, kind of hooked up with Patti Smith and she's exactly falls into that criteria. I mean, she's, you know, literary genius. So um, so so it's kind of weird how it started. It evolved into, you know, we're talking about these scummy clubs. And, and stuff, we're looking but, at like the early 70s, right? Yeah, this would have been like 72, 73. So it's kind of kind of happening simultaneously with disco. It's kind of a tale of two cities. Would, would you agree or is it a little bit predated? Yeah, and again, that's kind of the personality of the city kind of branching off and appealing to so many different types of people. disco was more of a, well, was disco a more affluent music? I don't know if I would agree with that or not. It was definitely more of a party type music. I think there was a lot more cocaine and kind of what, probably that sort of thing going on. But well, disco is synonymous with the gay scene. Yeah, I mean, that's true the, too. The, the 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 revolution and the freedom that that uh, gays in America and especially in New York were feeling were kind of that was the soundtrack to it. Right. Because you know here we are in the tail end of Vietnam and America's like. In a pretty burnout, yeah, yeah pretty brutal place. <laughs> Feels kind of similar right now. You know? Exactly. Maybe we got some new music scenes coming. Exactly. Yeah, anyway, so so you know, America's kind of in a you know, New York is is 
it's a hellhole. I mean, it's rotting. It's burning. It's New York was bankrupt, basically. Yeah. So here comes, you know, this scene that kind of uplifted everybody and said, you know what? I'm going to have fun no matter what. Right. You know, and that's kind of where disco and kind of the gay scene kind of melded. And then, it, of course, it, you know, disco carried on into more of a, a popular pop type music, top yeah. 40, which, yeah. you know, was fine. You listen to a lot of those songs, on, like, for example, the bass lines are oh, yeah. phenomenal. Oh, I, Nights on Broadway. I'll, I'll listen to oh, that. <laughs> I always listen to Saturday Night Live with uh, Jimmy Fallon and yeah. Justin Timberlake when they come out as the Bee Gees of that song. But, oh, man, the production yeah. on that yeah, stuff and the sure. Chic records. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nal Rogers, who's still Oh, for sure. But one of Bowie's better collaborators. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so, so yeah. yeah, those things were happening kind of simultaneously, but you know, these guys were looking for a place to express themselves. And, you know, I don't think they knew that they were creating this scene that was going to be so influential. I think they were just out of necessity. They were looking for a way, an outlet. You know, Are we something. talking about disco still or are we talking about? I, 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 I hop back to kind okay. of to uh, Hell and Verlaine. Was it a, do you think it was a counterpoint to that? Do you think they were, they were, they were answering that in some way or were they kind of just completely on their own wavelength? I think they were on their own and they were kind of sick of the cliches of rock and roll right. and how kind of um, posturing and yeah. yeah and just kind of how it had gotten so out of reach from the typical you know kid who wants to buy a record and learn how to play guitar along with it I mean it had it had totally. Well, I think of Elton John. I think of Mick Jagger. I think of Mark Bolan. Yeah. I think of David Bowie and all these kind of, you know, unreal characters. And so they were much more back down to anybody can do it type of. Yeah, these mentality. were like you know larger than life, you know, almost gods. And then you had a lot of the prog rock bands that were so huge. Oh, for who, sure. You know, you had to have a you know. $10,000 bank of keyboards to sound like Rick Wakeman. And right. yes, and yeah, yeah. who could afford that? Right. And it's funny because speaking of necessity, you know, a lot of people attribute the, the, the whole, um, the fashion of punk rock, if you will, to Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols yeah. in, in Britain in 1976, 1977. Um, and I don't think that he's taking false credit for it, but Richard Hell has come out several times and said, I was wearing safety pins and my clothes were ripped. Not as a fashion statement, that's because all. that's what I had. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was spray painting his clothes because they, you know, were dull. The color had gone out of them, and he just tried to make them look a little cooler. And right. And it wasn't to make a fashion statement. It was just out of necessity. So, Well, it's fun, and, and, and I've talked about this before, how kind of the U.K. and the States kind of trade things back and forth mm -hmm. and kind of take possession of it. There was a... I, for whatever, I had my son and I slept in the same bed last night because he couldn't go to sleep by himself. Uh -huh. he, I woke up at like four, and so I started reading these articles. And there was this article about the top t the top fifteen European hardcore bands you should know about. Uh -huh. And I was listening to it, and I was like, God, this sounds so much like American hardcore. And then I was like, But American hardcore kind of sounded like punk, which kind of came from the <laughs> so it's kind of like they trade ownership, you know, across the pond as to. Who who did what and why? Yeah, know? they're they're kind of incestuous scenes. Yeah, they go back and forth. You know, they borrow and they bet and they throw things back at each other, which is great. I mean, you know, I, I'm totally fine with that. But um, but yeah, so um, so these guys, I think, like I said, it was out of necessity. And legend has it that Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine were the ones who built the stage, really, at CBGB to encourage, you know, to kind of make it more of a, a haven for music right? for people to come here. Well, well, CBGB, wasn't it country bluegrass and something or other? What mm -hmm. was the CBGB stand for? It's, and I brought some notes with Sorry, me. I'm it's, jumping ahead. No, no, I no. I am excited. I'm, I'm, my, my memory's not what it used yeah. to be. It's, uh, it was country bluegrass and blues. Okay. Which was let it started out. Then they added the, um, the, uh, the other letters, the O-M. Bug. Yeah. yeah. Which... Do you know what that stands for? I don't think I do. <laughs> it's other music for uplifting gourmandizers. What is a gourmandizer? A gourmandizer is defined as somebody who is um, who eats uh, a, like a ravenous eater. But Hilly Crystal's um, mindset was he wanted that term to refer to people who 
devoured music that way. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of. I just learned. I just. I'm sorry. You have to forgive me. I go off on tangents. So I was telling you about the books that I got. I got a Fugazi book, not a New York. We're not talking about that band, but right, right. I had already heard of Fugazi, what it meant, but I didn't realize it was actually an acronym. Did you know that it was an acronym? No, I didn't. It's fucked up. Got ambushed. Zipped in, and it was a. It was a, a term used in Vietnam for when they had to. Get put people in body bags for getting ambushed. So fucked up, got ambushed, zipped in, is where wow. Fugazi comes from. And I, I was like, as much as I've been a fan of that, I just learned that in reading an article. So anyways, you learn something new. Every that's day. amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. All right, so now I know I'm fug and you know Fugazi. All right, I, keep going. Perfect. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 these guys. What happened too was, you know, before Patti Smith had uh, kind of delved into music, she was a poet, right? She hung out with. Um, a lot of these guys, and she was good friends with uh, Robert Maplethorpe, who would later become a pretty controversial photographer. So, and, and, and she wrote poetry, and she was into literature and French poetry and all these things. So, what she started doing was writing her own poetry. And Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine started playing music behind, behind her it. spoken word poetry. Right, and that's kind of how she evolved into becoming a music artist. She also incorporated. Um, Another guitarist, Lenny Kay, who has been part of her band right. since day one. And uh, he was a New York, obviously a New York guy. He worked at a record store, huge music fan. You talk about knowledgeable. This guy is yeah. so knowledgeable. He's written books. He's the one who is responsible for that. Um, if you're familiar with that series of nuggets of the, uh, the garage bands, the kind of long lost garage bands, he was the one who had the thought to compile all these songs and put them out on compilations. I, I'm not aware of those. Yeah, yeah. Something new all, I got I to gotta look into. They're fantastic. Okay. Rhino's done a couple of nice um, box sets of the Nuggets compilations. Right. And just the history behind these groups and these songs. Are oh, that sounds amazing. Fascinating. But Lenny Kay's the guy who put that together. Okay. So he, he's doing that too with uh, Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine backing Patti Smith. And then it eventually becomes, it evolves that other guys from other bands in the scene join her and hence, that's the Patti Smith group. So wow. it, it, it kind of happened all really organically. I mean, yeah. I don't think these guys were going, okay, today I'm going to go out and find myself a guitarist. I mean, it was very, um, it, it just happened kind of naturally. And that's usually kind of how it happens, right? It is. I mean, the various scenes you go through, you know, I, there's, a, there's a movie I've been watching a lot about the beginning of Thrash in, uh, mm -hmm. in Southern California. And I mean, even if you go back in earlier New York, I mean, with Dylan and a lot of, you know, there's that great movie. Uh, what's the Coen Brothers movie? Oh, the. Um, oh, that's gonna kill me. Yeah, I know. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's about. It's kind of that was probably the last scene in New York before yes, this one. So, exactly. and and it's funny because when you mentioned Patty, she's kind of a transition point between those two because she there is. was very much a folky poetry aspect to that folk scene, and she kind of took it into the punk scene, the new wave scene. So it was kind of a nice exactly, bridge. Yeah. exactly. And and the thing that one of the points I wanted to make with her and with the other guys we've talked about so far, you know, there was a lot of variety amongst these fo these bands too. I mean, when you think of New York, like we talked about, you think of the Ramones, you think of you know um, the New York Dolls, but even the other bands who are you know known for being Second part of that tier, scene, yeah. they they really didn't sound like each no. other. You know, she was more folk based right. and she kind of got dubbed the, you know, the goddess or the poetess of punk. And, you know, and yeah, that's that's a fair tag. But I mean, she's somebody who grew up on, you know, listening to Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison. Right. The poetry aspect. And she kind of evolved into that kind of throne, if right. you will. Um, but, you know, you have people like Talking Heads who we brought up very synonymous with the New York scene. But those are art school kids that. You know, they were doing their own kind of quirky left of center. I mean, they didn't sound anything. No, and like, David Byrne is singular and unique. Oh, and just I, I think he's yeah. on the spectrum. I think he's admittedly on the spectrum. Oh, like I think he kind of exists and he's a genius. He's on a wavelength that no one else, not even in the band, was in. And yeah. he still is. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, he's he, still doing stuff today that's groundbreaking. Yeah. Did Did you see the last show he did, the American Utopia? I did. What was the one he did with Brian Eno? Was that? American no no this the uh, American Utopia was the one he did where uh, it was the last tour he did they were like dancers or yeah, well all of the musicians okay. were untethered yeah like the drummer was wearing you know wearable drum kit yeah uh, you know nothing was hooked in so they had a lot of freedom right. to move around 
I mean, who does that? Who thinks of that? You well, know, he's, he's 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 trying to break new ground, but he did a great record with St. Vincent. Yes, he did a great record with. He's done two with Brian Eno, right? At least correct. Both of them insane and differently insane. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously the Talking Heads and his own work, and he's an author and a you know, oh. so just kind of yeah, he's he's like it's, a world it's pouring out of him. He's just looking <laughs> exactly. for an outlet. Yeah, he's a world unto yeah. himself. That's right. But but that's what I thought was so fascinating was a lot of these bands didn't really. I mean, you could see similarities, obviously, but you could see some really obvious differences, too. Um, and what I wanted to talk about was, you know, some of those bands and some of those dif- differences. You had, um, you know, you had the loud, fast, kind of aggressive, the Ramones and the Dictators. Right. You know, I, I would be, if I didn't mention Remiss, the Dictators, yeah. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And, um, you know, so you had that kind of school. Then you also had, like we mentioned, television, Patti Smith, kind of artsy, literary, more, um, you know, kind of more cerebral type right. of stuff. Uh, you know, Blondie, who eventually... Uh, she was almost... Uh, had a one foot in both worlds, disco and, and rock, at least well, in some regards. Later, Her more yeah. popular stuff, yeah. And, and that kind of that kind of worked to her disadvantage. That, that marginalized her with her original with, fan. With the yeah. roots that yeah. she came from, unfortunately. You can't, be a, a, you can't be an attractive punk rocker. It's very hard to be attractive without, without you know, the commercialism trying to pull you and sell you. So, But, you know, and I've always laughed at that term, sellout. You yeah. know, a lot of people threw that at her. You know, it's been thrown at The Clash. It's been thrown at everybody. But, you know, selling out is eventually, to my... To my uh, understanding or to my perception is, you know, changing your sound to maybe appeal to other people. Okay. That's kind of a good definition of it, but isn't it punk rock to just do something totally unlike what you just did? Right. For sure. That's the ethos of punk rock. Don't keep doing the same thing. Yeah. And break, break expectations, break stereotypes for sure. Yeah. You know, that's what bored a lot of the bands like the clash and the jam who, you know, kind of looked around and said, these guys are doing what we did two years ago yeah. and they're not doing it nearly as, yeah. as well, you know, right. so let's kind of branch out, you know, Paul Weller said, let's take the jam in more of an R and B direction. And Mick Jones said, let's take the clash into more of a hip hop direction. Yeah. And hence, you know, yeah. the great music these guys did. So, um, so yeah, Blondie took a lot of, a lot of flack for that, but, um, but but they started out as more of a kind of a retro, kind of like a throwback to the girl groups, you know, kind of like the sound of the Shangri-Las or the Ronettes. That was kind of the basis. Right. So, and they came out of that scene. Who's the drummer? I was watching a documentary. Clem Burke. Yeah, Clem Burke comes in and plays drums with somebody on one of the documentaries. I think it was a, the Melvin's documentary. Uh-huh. They had him come in and start playing on one of the songs, and they were going through. I think Buzz Osborne's a big Blondie fan. So yeah, yeah. Event. Clem Burke is. Have you ever seen him play live? Just in that documentary, no. Oh, my gosh. He's a powerhouse. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. I saw him once. He was he was part of the Knack for a while. Okay. And uh, the Knack had hired him to tour and tour with him. And um, after the show, um, I kind of went outside to talk to some friends, and I saw him run outside and kind of pace back and forth, back and forth. And he was sweating up a storm, and he was like, he was almost out of breath. It was like he had run a marathon. And I was just like, that guy earned it right yeah, there. Yeah. He was just pacing back and forth yeah. and trying to catch his breath. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, that's the type of type of player he Which is. Which Blondie's not the type of music that I would expect to have a powerhouse drummer, but I, I know. Yeah. I know. That's pretty cool. But these uh, juxtapositions are always kind of cool. They are. Yeah. They really are. And you know, she Blondie or Debbie Harry and Blondie are arguably the most the band that rose to the highest heights right. out of that scene. I mean, that was a platinum selling band at all the over time, the world. I think I think I think retrospectively maybe certain artists have sold like the Ramones now probably sure. outsold but in the in the moment they were yeah. they were getting to live off of the uh accolade much more close in time proximity to when they were playing than way e- after exactly. the fact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny cuz uh Johnny Ramone rest in peace was very pretty critical about Blondie well, they're they're crazy. I mean, they're uh, you know they're an interesting gang. I mean, yeah, a few of them are like staunch conservative Republican kind of. Oh, I know. Kind of, yeah, 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 Johnny was. Yeah, yeah, for sure he was. Outspoken. Yeah. You know, funny story about Johnny. They, um, the Ramones were like my Beatles. I mean, oh, when I was sure. growing yeah. up, those four guys were like you know Everything. the epitome. And um, I had seen him once in 1983. That was the first time I saw him over at Janice Landing, 
to make. Oh wow! Yeah, that that's my. my cl- that's I grew up in St. Pete, so that's yeah, where, yeah. That's where all my memorable shows were. Yeah, that was my first Ramones show. Oh and my it was god! Very obviously life changing. Yeah. But they came back the next year in 1984. They were doing a free show out at USF, and um, I think it was Halloween, if I'm not mistaken. It was like Halloween '84. Oh my god! <laughs> and um, I would you know leave school to go hang out and camp out outside right. of venues to be first in line. I was kind of like Riff Randall in Rock and Roll High School, yeah, yeah, yeah. that character, <laughs> the male version, I guess. So I went out there really early because I was just like, oh, my God, the Ramones are in my hometown. And um, they were still, you know, they hadn't even sound checked yet. They were just kind of sitting around and eating. And yeah. I have I took pictures. They Like they were playing football. They were throwing a football around. I don't even USF. think they were much drink, of drinkers, were they? No. They were no. kind of strangely clean in a weird way. Well, Dee Dee was, yeah, yeah, you know, he yeah, had yeah. his run-ins. Not him. But yeah. uh, he was a big heroin yeah, junkie. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so they were just kind of hanging out. They right. were eating. And I got to meet them, and, oh, which wow. was like a huge, it just oh, I mean, my it blew my mind. Yeah. So I brought some records with me, and I was getting them signed. And I had like a cheap, I don't know, like a dime store marker or something. And when I got to Johnny, I said, hey, will you sign this record for me? He said, yeah, of course. And he l- used the marker, and um, Died. he used it. And he said, um, do you ever use Sharpies? And I didn't know what a Sharpie yeah. was. And I got really scared. I thought that was like some sort of hip, underground yeah. New York drug term. Yeah. He said, do you ever use Sharpies? And I said, no. <laughs> He said, you should really use Sharpies. And I said, okay. And he signed my record and gave it back to me. And probably six months went by until I... Before he learned what it was. Yes. I said, oh, that's what he was talking about. A good permanent marker. I thought it was like a... That's that's awesome. It was like a a little slang term. code for something. And I was like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. But um, so um, they were... (laughs) It's funny. I have pictures with them. I was... That's probably four. You need to you need to make one of these books. Yeah, right. You really do. You probably have enough to fill one. Yeah. I was probably fifteen, and you know I've got pictures with the Ramones, and they're they were nice. They were nice enough. They were polite, but they were just never lives up to what you wanted to. Well, they were just already at that point in 1984. I mean, they'd been going for one. almost ten years already. 1994. You know? No, 84. 84. Okay. They were already pretty yeah. jaded. Yeah. I mean, they they knew at that point that a hit record was going to elude them forever. Right. I mean, they tried so hard. And, you know, it's it's funny because I still do this. Every time I play Rocket to Russia, which is my favorite Ramones album, right. the third one, um, every time I hear, like, Sheena's a punk rocker, I'm like, why was this not a number one hit blaring out of everybody's car that summer? Well, and every one of their songs is a single, pretty much. Every one. I mean, you know, you listen to enough albums and, you know, there's amazing albums that are great all the way through, but generally, if you get three or four good songs on an album, you're doing okay. Exactly. And with them, it's just like any one of those could have been on the radio. Any one of them. Yeah. But they, they well, were. Was it always, time or what was it? A variety of things. They were obviously in the wrong place at the wrong time. But when they started kind of getting some attention and the spotlight, we were talking about the connection between UK and the US. When the spotlight kind of came back on them, because, you know, a lot of the British uh, bands will tell you that that first time that the Ramones played in the UK was kind of what planted the seed for them. You know, when they saw the Ramones play in, uh, in, in London, it was right. like, oh, my gosh, this is what I wanted to do my whole life. Yeah. And that kind of inspired Saturday. a lot of those bands. So when the Ramones started having that spotlight shown on them and said, these are the guys who started it, that was at the same time that the Sex Pistols were dragging the term punk rock through the mud and people were getting such a bad feeling about them. Right. And the record labels were so chicken shit. They were like, if it's punk rock, we're not signing not it, it because, you know, Johnny Rotten has just created this whole, you know, th- this world of evil that we don't want to be associated right. with. And that affected the Ramones. All of a sudden, they were like, you know, these guys who created the scene and now they were carrying this torch of being, you know, playing this awful kind of, and, and they were getting so much bad press. I mean, I think the crowds at some point turned on them too. I remember hearing one story about when they started, people just kind of stood still and didn't know what to do. And then somehow like moshing came over uh-huh. and then they, people started spitting on them and they were like, what, what are you doing? Which in England was huge. Yeah. You'd spit on the band, but yeah. over here they're like, what? The f-? And there'd just be fights and you know, all this stuff. And, oh yeah. I think Johnny, who was pretty hot headed, he wanted to yeah. beat a bunch of people, beat a bunch of people up who were doing that. Right. Like, right. Why are you spitting on us? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't think anybody knew what to make of them because 
you know, they each song, especially played live, was about two minutes. If that. So, two chords, two minutes, and you yeah. know, in half an hour they had already played, you know, three so, albums. Yeah. Exactly. You yeah. know, so people did not know what to make them of them and people were confused, especially with that first album. If you ever go back and read any of the reviews, oh my gosh, you're comical. I mean, people were like, this is the worst piece of dog shit I've ever heard. And, you know, it's just, it's funny looking back now. Yeah, it's out of context. Yeah, for sure. You know, so, um, you know, but some of the other bands you had, you know, you had a couple of bands that came over to be part of the CBGB scene from um, Ohio. You had the Dead Boys from Cleveland, Steve Baders, who, yeah, they had kind of, you know, made a name for themselves in uh, Cleveland, but I don't think they knew. I, I think they knew they were never going to reach the same heights there. They than, were in New York for sure. Yeah, so they became regulars at CBGBs, and I mean, Stiv was to me still one of the greatest frontmen of all time. That that's probably the greatest frontman I've ever witnessed. Right, I mean, just just a totally possessed, charismatic. Ohio has a weird kind of scene, a weird identity. It I, is. I haven't really thought much about it, but I, as I'm going through and thinking about bands that have come from there. Oh, yeah. That's true, yeah. Very, very I've never been true. to Ohio, so it'd be interesting to see what it's like. I've been there for a short period of time. I mean, I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah, yeah. which was pretty amazing. But, yeah, a lot of different bands. I mean, you have Devo, you have Perubu, you have, you know, the Dead Boys. Right, right, I mean, right. totally different bands, but... Um, and then you had, and I'm going to talk about this band because I don't think they ever get enough love for the New York scene. You had a band called Suicide. Okay. Who Suicide was totally different than everybody else in that scene. Suicide was made up of two guys, Alan Vega, who was a little older than everybody else in the scene, and Martin Rev, again, a little bit older than all the other guys. But uh, Suicide was just a guy and a keyboard, but... Not to say they were a synth pop band. Sure. They weren't like, you know, what you think of, you know, Soft Cell or Erasure right. now. Uh, suicide was pretty ab- abrasive, pretty right. aggressive. Um, suicide was, you know, drug influenced and death influenced and very dark images uh, being sung to this really chaotic, kind of crazy, over the top, almost unlistenable at times keyboard squealing think of like john zorn or i think of steve albino like kind of you know just exactly i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna do everything i can to make you not like to alienate (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and suicide started that and you know again you know i keep saying this but they were nothing like the other bands but a huge part of that scene a huge part of the originality and the kind of the uniqueness that came out of that scene now um to me suicide has influenced so many bands that came after him. I mean, to me, there would be no industrial music if it wasn't for Suicide. Um, there's a band called Cabaret Voltaire that I love. Sure. Pretty influential British, you know, similar uh, setup. Of right. One man keyboard band. Their early stuff is really I've never heard of them so that, okay. that's that's going to be something that I get to go uh, study this week. Oh, oh, awesome. I that, this is this is all just a Trojan horse for me to oh, get new oh, bands wow. to to follow. So this, I'm being very selfish right now. Well, anyway. Oh, great. Well, to me Cabaret Voltaire was the most obvious descendant of Suicide. Sure. Cabaret Voltaire was again early on just like Suicide, very aggressive, very noisy, very unlistenable. They almost transformed into more of a um, I'm not going to say a dance band, but a lot of their singles became really big and the goth and dark wave clubs. I think of Ministry and Nine Inch Nails who were much longer after, but I'm sure they probably owe a debt to oh, these bands. Total, total debt to Cabaret Voltaire. Right, right. In my, in my right. view. Um, but yeah, Suicide was, you know, very, um, nobody had heard anything like that. Right. Nobody had seen anything like that, you know. Um, so that's another band from that scene that I thought, was interesting in what their approach was. Um, you know, you also had um, somebody like Mink DeVille who started in that scene. But he, Mink DeVille, was kind of more of a straightforward kind of rock and roll guy, but his vocals were very uh, much influenced by R&B. Okay. So he a had... A little bit more of a crooner? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what... Th- th- that's kind of how he... I think that's how kind of he packaged himself. Not to say that... I don't mean that in a... Uh, pretentious way i just mean he, was that what he played under or was he mink deville 
he his stage name was Mick Deville. Okay, okay. He, he was Willie Deville, but okay. he went under Mick Deville, and um, he had kind of more of an R and B thing kind of happening. What was the band like? Um, kind of, um, kind of like a um, straight ahead rock and roll, almost like a bar band, but. Because I think of like the Misfits, which you know you've got you've got Danzig doing his best kind of Elvis crooning exactly. over a punk band, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I, not necessarily the same sound, but a similar juxtaposition, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, t- take a listen to a uh, great Mink Deville song from early on. There's one called uh, "Spanish Stroll." Okay, that'll give you a feel, feel for, for okay. kind of what he was doing at that time. So, um, you also had another band. They really didn't get anywhere, but they were regulars on the scene there was a band called tough darts tough darts tough darts we're getting deep now tough darts didn't really go anywhere but their biggest claim to fame was for a while their lead singer robert gordon broke out and he was kind of the first that i remember in my lifetime he was kind of the first rockabilly revivalist okay i mean robert gordon's first solo album came out in about 76 and he did a song called red hot which was like an old rockabilly uh hit for um oh Billy, Billy Lee Riley. And Red Hot was where I grew up. I grew up in, in you know, when I lived left yeah. New York, I was living in Providence, and we had really good radio up there. Red Hot was played on the radio all the time. Robert Gordon's guitarist is Link Ray, who oh, we all know sure. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the absolute greats. So yeah. Robert Gordon became known as kind of this retro kind of um, rockabilly revivalist, but just excellent singer, great singer. The guy can sing anything. And um, the funny thing about him was he had a lot of, uh, he wasn't really known, but a lot of people knew him in the scene and respected him. He had a song written for him by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, wow. Called Fire. Oh, yeah. Not the same one that I'm thinking about, is it? It is. Oh, wow. Okay. That was written especially for Robert Gordon. Oh, I didn't. Oh, wow. Robert Gordon recorded it and it went nowhere. And then the next he does it. year, the Pointer Sisters record it. Yeah, it's a number one hit. It yeah, revitalizes their career. Oh my God! You know, so it's Bruce great. was a big Robert Gordon fan. Anyway, so Robert Gordon came out of that scene indirectly in that he was the lead singer of this band called Tough Darts. But that was kind of the regular CBGB's kind of rotating lineup. Okay. At that time, which was you know, and every band had kind of its own following. I mean, a lot of band, a lot of people would come see multiple bands on different nights like you know it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to go see television and then go see you know blondie maybe or vice versa um but the the funny thing about cbgb's the hilly the owner had two rules he said to play here you have to follow two rules you have to move load in and load out your own equipment so we don't have anybody here that's going to do it for you right and you have to play the majority of original stuff he didn't want a bunch of cover Cover bands. bands in there yeah. You know, obviously some people would eventually do covers, throw one in here and there, but that wasn't the sole basis of their set. And that was kind of the only really two things that he stuck to. He said, um, you know, move your own stuff and play your own stuff and you're good. And, and the cool thing about CVGVC was, you know, this was a whole, uh, this was the underground of New York. Right. This was the underbelly, which meant, and I think we talked about this a little earlier, you were mentioning somebody you know who, you know, is up all night. Yeah. CBGB's was thriving yeah. at, you know, 1, 2, 3 a.m. Right. That's when, you know, that's when the uh, the, the bands uh, were really kind of doing their thing. And it's funny because um, the first time Patti Smith was a musical guest on Saturday Night Live, I want to say it was in 76, might have been 77, probably 76 if I remember correctly, um, when Patti Smith played her last song. Of course, that was a live show, right. she said, hey, come on down to CBGB's. We're going to play later. And this would have been, you know, the show was on from 1130 right. to 1 a.m. Everybody was there. You know, so she was probably on her way from yeah. the NBC studio down to CBGB to play the first set of the night. Yeah. Which is, you know. That's I, badass. I think that's so. Was Fear New York or are they California? Fear is California. Oh, okay, because I, I always remember the John Belushi Fear. Oh, you ever kind seen of, that? Yeah. It's amazing. Crazy. It's yeah. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. He, different scene. Different no, scene. We're no, just talking about New York. Belushi took a lot of flack for that, yeah. but I think he loved the fact that he did. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, of course, back in those days, you know, to get in there, it was like a buck, two bucks to go see these bands. And again, I don't think people knew they were seeing 
these bands that were going to mold and shape what we would listen to for the rest of our lives. But, you know, besides those bands, I just want to throw in an interesting thing about CBGBs. A couple of other notable things about it. I talked about the Damned earlier. You know, the Damned, is <laughs> they're near and dear to my heart. They don't get a lot of credit for what they did. They were the first British punk rock band to release a record. Their single, really? New Rose, came out way before Sex Pistols' Sex Pistols. first single came out. Um, the Damned were trailblazers in that they were the first band to come to New York. You know, the scene we were getting over here, we were getting a lot of info about, um, you know, what was happening over in England. It was exciting. And, you know, The Clash, the first album, the imp before it had been released in the States, that first album was, at that time, the best-selling import album ever. Right. You know, because so many people over here wanted to get hold of that first album because they had heard so much about it. So the Damned were the first ones to come here to the U.S., and they played CBGBs. Right. That's where they played. Um, Elvis Costello's first New York show was at CBGBs. The very first time the police ever played in the States was at CBGBs, you know. Band you mentioned, who I know you love, the Misfits, yeah. that's where they started. Right, right. You know, so it, it's just crazy that this little tiny club just is so renowned for well and it goes on from there there's a whole other generation that comes after that when you start getting into the new york hardcore scene mm -hmm. you've got youth of today and gorilla oh. biscuits and Cro-Mags and all these different and then uh some of the dc bands come over minor threat and uh bad brains and some of these other things and so because they're right there next to each other absolutely and so cbgb has this whole other life kind totally. of after that you have the plasmatics right right, right. Yeah. i love who, yeah you know kind of far removed from in a way from that original scene, I mean, their their roots were still in punk rock, but they were more obviously more um, uh, visual, more right. kind of over the top, and you know, blowing up TVs and cars, yeah, yeah. and you know. But nonetheless, CBGBs was kind of where they started out. Um, Agnostic Front, oh yeah, a band called Kraut, very fantastic New York hardcore band who. Again, doesn't get enough credit. They were kind of regulars at CBGB. So, so yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty prestigious, as funny as that sounds, to get to play at this little dump, at this little hole-in-the-wall place. Now, not necessarily CBGB-related, but definitely New York-related. We kind of mentioned them briefly at the beginning, but yeah. I feel like we got to spend more time on sure. them. the New York Dolls and Velvet Underground. Yes. So where do they fall in the timeline? Uh, I feel like maybe Velvets are a little bit on the earlier end. Am I... Yes. Okay, because they're almost tail end of the '60s, going into the '70s, right? Or am I am I mistaken yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Okay. Um, you know, the Velvets were, you know, at, at towards the end, Lou Reed left, and they had another singer. wasn't the same, obviously, but he was ready to to break out and go do his own thing. But um, there's a pretty famous, uh, really good um, live Velvet Underground album that was recorded at Max's Kansas City. Right. Yeah. we were talking about. And it's funny because if you've ever heard it, there's a lot of crowd talking. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays you hear that. You hear people talking at a show and you're like, you know, shut up. I want to hear the band. You know, this was just a bar. This was a place, you know, a local bar where people were going. Of course, it was the Velvet Underground on stage, but you hear people talking. And if you listen really closely, it's um, the person who's holding the tape recorder and recording that show uh -huh. is Jim Carroll. Oh, wow. Who is oh, huge the, on yeah, the scene. The basketball and, Diaries. And exactly. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was Jim Carroll. Oh, my God. That's you know? crazy. And, you know, that, 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 the Velvets were kind of, yeah, they kind of uh, were more of a uh, Max's Kansas City band. And then when they kind of went away, that's when the Dolls kind of stepped in. And the Dolls, New York Dolls, were um, earlier than... The Ramones earlier, but the than, Dolls to me, I get like a T Rex, a punk T Rex vibe, you know, because uh, what's his face, the lead singer was kind David of David Johansson. Yeah, he was kind of vamping it up and kind of, you know, actually, and I mentioned this with Blondie earlier. Their biggest motivating, their their biggest influence was the girl group sound. Yeah, was I mean, where was Joan Jett? What was that? New York, or where, where were they from? Uh, when she... What was the uh, band that she was in before it was Joan Jett? The Runaways. Like Runaways, yeah, was that? That was L.A. L.A., okay. That yeah, was California. My... But she, again, she wanted to do her own thing, and she was... Her roots were definitely more steep than punk rock, which is kind of what the split was in The Runaways. I didn't know Lita Ford was in that band. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, because yeah. I was... My introduction to Lita Ford was stilettos and fishnets and singing exactly. with Ozzy and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah, she was a badass. Yeah, yeah. The, 
but she was leaning more towards the metal side, right. and Joan Jett was more the punk rock right. side. So I think they kind of clashed there, no pun intended. But um, but Joan Jett came to New York to kind of get um, known as a solo artist because she knew that it was probably more likely for what she wanted to do that New York would be more receptive to her sound. Right. She was getting established as a, a solo artist. So so yeah, she is later on. She's part of that whole scene too, indirectly, because she came back there. Um, she's originally from uh, Baltimore. She went out to LA, then she came back to the East Coast to be part of that New York scene, and that's where she kind of got her start as a soloist. And I just love that music so much that we're talking about because, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm born in 75, uh, you know, I was kind of there for the advent of quote unquote indie music. Yeah. And indie music just owes so much of its its aesthetic, its its morals, its whatever you want to call it sure. to that New York scene, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean talking like we said, talking heads, television, Velvet Underground, you know, the Ramones, mm. all these things. It's just those are the the forefathers of sure. it. And and I don't know. I mean, I, I guess everybody kind of says it. And that was never that good again, you know, but it kind of, kind of, it's gener- almost empirically true, you know? Yeah, every generation is going to tell you that. Right, though. right, it right. It wasn't the way it was back when, you know. And for you, for your age group, I'm sure the, the common thread from the scenes we're talking about was Sonic Youth. Oh, 100%. I yeah. mean, they, Chris Moore and uh, Kim Gordon and, you know, and yeah. they kind of spearheaded that. You know, when I think of the quote, uh, when I think of the term, college rock or indie rock oh, for sure I, mean, I think of rem and sonic youth yeah yeah i mean that's kind of who the leaders of that whole and i mean sonic youth new york band right who took a lot from that uh you know the punk rock vibe and turned it into their their own thing and know? and i think then after that last hardcore scene it pretty much new york turned to hip-hop as kind of its yeah you know it's it's main uh contribution to the sure. music scene thereabouts you know because you have, uh, I don't want to bleed too far into other possible podcast no, topics, no, no. but you know, if we look at the Beastie Boys, they started out in the hardcore community, which was kind of in the second phase of punk or hardcore at CBGB. Exactly. And then they get into, you know, uh, whether it's Run DMC or mm-hmm. I forget who the other artist was that they loved, but and then they meet Rick Rubin, and then we yep. start the hip hop, and then that just sets that down a whole other path. And it's a whole snowball effect. Yeah. You know, it starts with this these little tiny clubs and it evolves into your TV set. Exactly. You know, so just totally fascinating. But, um, um, you know, so you also had, um, uh, talking about Max's. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about Max's and, um, Max's was known for, it was kind of, and I think I mentioned this earlier, it was kind of a hit place to be seen. Um, but, uh, it was also known for a lot of celebrities would hang out there. Um, a lot of politicians. It was kind of like a like people were hobnobbing sure. at this place that would eventually become this another mecca for independent underground music. And one of the uh, another person I want to mention who was definitely tied into the Maxis scene, who was very influential, is um, Wayne County, the first transgender, oh wow, punk rock pioneer who eventually became Jane County. But Wayne County was pretty vulgar, pretty right. filthy, which just kind of added to the whole, you know, the whole look and the whole scene. Um, Wayne County was this guy who, you know, he's from Georgia. He's a right. Southern guy, goes to New York, you know, dresses in women's clothing. Very obviously a man dressed in women's clothing. Not so much like the dolls, but not so far removed either. But Wayne had this um, kind of Southern drawl. And he was playing these, <laughs> these really offensive songs and lyrics. But Wayne County was also a DJ at Max's. Wayne County was the first person in New York to play a Sex Pistols record. Oh wow! He played Anarchy in the UK. Oh wow! You know, so kind of again, those That's two scenes cool. uh, coming together. But um, if you've ever seen um, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, oh for sure, yeah. To me, and I mean, I thought this from the first day I ever saw it. To me, that. That story sort of borrows a lot from Wayne County's story. Right. You know, very similar in um, kind of the, 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 the scenes they were in and, you know, starting in into more punk rock. So, so Wayne County is somebody who I'm really um, big on. I mean, huge, huge pioneer. Doesn't get any, 
any credit. And um, well, she, Jane County, she's on Facebook. She's my Facebook. Oh, really? Friend. She has five thousand friends. Oh, you know, wow! Very cool. But she'll post her. Uh, she, she's really into cats now. Oh my god! And she's she, a, she's a cat lady. Yes, yeah, that's hilarious. And she posts a lot of paintings. Oh my god! Of oh, her cats. Good, good and, yeah, for her. She's, yeah. Um, so that's somebody who I wanted to mention from that scene. Again, talking about how varied it was, but. Um, let's see, what else did I want to cover? Who haven't I mentioned? I talked a little bit about the dictators. Um, oh, and this is a good tie-in from Wayne County. The dictators, um, uh, handsome Dick Manitoba, the lead singer, who's a character. I mean, he's a total character. He opened later on in recent years, he opened his own bar close to where CBGB's was down in Alphabet City called Manitoba's. And it's probably, and my friends who have been there with me would probably agree. It's probably the most fun bar I've ever been really? in. Really? Oh. Uh, best jukebox by far. Oh, man. Now you're by talking. Far. Now you're talking. Um, the only... I can lose some money on those oh, things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was still, you know, dirt cheap. For to, sure, but yeah. You know, um, the only jukebox where I ever saw a Dave Edmonds 45 next to a Nick Lowe 45. Oh, wow. And I was like, I'm home, you know. Uh, Manitoba's, <laughs> and it was so funny because he ran the place. That was his place. Yeah. Everybody else I know. Was there live music there? Um, I don't think there okay. ever was. Okay. No, I don't think there was. And I could be wrong. It's very small. I never saw a band there. It was mostly just a great hangout, a great hang. But on the walls, he I mean, it was so much cooler than a hard rock cafe. You know, Handsome Dick had pictures of him and, you know. It was hard earned. It was legitimate. Exactly. It wasn't bought. It wasn't, you know, Xerox pictures of Jimmy It Hendrix. was the it real was, deal, you know. yeah, yeah. So everybody I knew who'd ever been to Manitoba said, oh, my God, Handsome Dick poured me a gin and tonic. Oh. Every time I ever went, oh, he's not here tonight. Yeah, that's the way it I works. I never got to see that's him. That's the way right? it works, yeah. So um, great bar. I mean, I've spent, you know, I've been there after the doors have closed. They didn't kick us out. Oh, wow. Because we were spending so much yeah, money. Yeah. And one of the hazy memories I have is, you know, being on the table with my friends and screaming, the lyrics to Cheap Trick Surrender oh, nice. at full blast while the girls, the ladies behind the bar were buying us drinks. Oh, wow. Because we had already nice. bought so many. So, yeah, so great bar. But The Dictators, um, great lead-in from Wayne County. Uh, I think Handsome Dick and Wayne County were kind of rivals. And there's a story where uh, Handsome Dick was mocking Wayne County from the foot of the stage. Right. And I don't know if it was at uh, Max's. Um, but Wayne County took the, the bottom of the, the mic base of the mic and just, bashed and just started bashing yeah. his head. It nearly killed him. Yeah. You know, so that's folklore from that scene. Um, we talked about uh, television, Richard Hell, again, another big hero of and mine. He went on to his own glory. Did, oh, well, yeah. Kind of, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Richard Hell is, I know I use this term a lot, but it's because it's true. Richard Hell is a huge, huge, huge hero of mine. For what he did, for what he represents, for what he put together. But, and this is on a personal level, most especially because, you know, I'm I'm not ashamed. You know, I, I get called fanboy all the time. Yeah. I don't care. That's a compliment. Right, sure. For a lot of people, that's a, that's a derogatory yeah, term. Yeah. I'm like, bring it on. I wrote Richard Hell a letter when I was probably 17 because I was so immersed in this scene. And his first album, Blank Generation, was, to me, was just the gateway to everything, right? So I wrote Richard Hell a letter because I said, you know, man, what you've done for me is just, and he wrote me back. That's awesome. And I you still, still have it. I still, still have, have it. it. That's awesome. It's inside my blank generation record. Oh, wow. It's hand, you don't have a frame. handwritten. Oh, wow. And you know what's so funny about it too was, um, you know, uh, he hand wrote the envelope too. And up top in the top left where you would write the return address, there's a whole bunch of white, uh, white out of liquid paper on uh-huh. there. And then over it is the address of his management or publicity firm. And I thought to myself, I said, you know, I wouldn't doubt if Richard Hell being just covered up under, his regular address. Just put his own address yeah, yeah. and said, you know what? That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> this guy in Tampa might be a total psycho <laughs> yeah. who's going to fly up here and think yeah. that we're best friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always thought that was so funny. So he, <laughs> I would never do that, you know, but I'm surprised you didn't scratch it off to see where he lived. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Richard Hell to me is, I mean, I just can't say enough about him. So he's in television. He leaves. He gets kicked out. He starts the Heartbreakers, 
prior to Tom Petty's band having that name, the Heartbreakers, um, with uh, Johnny Thunders. And Bringing it back to the T-shirt. I'm wearing my Johnny Thunder shirt. What a shirt. nice bookend to this whole conversation. One of my many Johnny Thunder shirts okay. I'll add. Um, Richard Hell leaves the Heartbreakers, and he starts the Voidoids with Robert Quine on guitar. Fantastic. Rest his soul. Guitarist. Um, uh, and to me, again, that album is just not even talking about the scene, talking about the history of rock and roll. Right. Blank Generation is just way, way up there for me. So he was a big part of it, obviously. Uh, we talked about the Talking Heads. Uh, we talked about um, the Dead Boys a little bit and how they kind of got known in New York for being so outrageous, even though they were an Ohio band. Um, you know, then you had bands like a lot of people don't equate with uh, CBGBs in the New York scene. You had somebody like the Cramps. Oh, for sure, who, yeah. Another band that I love. Oh, for sure. Well, you talk about the rockabilly, the surf guitar kind of mixed with the punk, the, the mis- oh. you know, horror billy, horror punk. You know, there's this whole oh. other kind of oh, yeah. genre that comes out of there. And Lux, you know, the lead singer, Lux Interior, again, wow, what a front man. I mean, just... <laughs> Did you listen? Did you ever listen to that Henry Rollins show I was telling you to? Yes. Did yes, you listen yes. where Ian MacKay went and recorded? He like brought his tape deck and recorded the cramps, and I think it was in New York. He and yes. Henry Henry Garfield, now Henry right. Rollins, went right, and right. recorded it, and he still got the tape of it. Yeah. And that's what Henry played on the show. Yeah. It's that's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. The cramps are... <laughs> the last time the cramps played here was at the State Theater. Okay. And, gosh, I can't even tell you what year it was. It was many years ago. But I, <laughs> this is going to sound awful, but I went and I saw... So many people at that show that I didn't know were still alive. Oh, yeah. You know, people who I hadn't seen in 10, 12, 15 years right. all turned out for the cramps. And I'm like, man, that's clout right there. Yeah, if you can bring people out of if, their cave if to you can bring come and people, see you. Yeah, those people out to see you. So uh, another band is the Flesh Tones. Okay. You know, kind of more of a garage band they became known as. Kind of like a party, 60s garage throwback, but big on the CBGB scene a little later. Right. Um, there was a band called The Shirts. They were huge. Never broke out in the New York scene, but the shirts got on a major label. They put out a, a couple of records, didn't go anywhere. But uh, the shirts, the lead singer was a woman named Annie Golden. Now, a lot of people might know Annie Golden now because she's been an actress for many years. She had a pretty significant part in the movie Hair, the okay. adaptation of the Broadway show. Okay. The film came out in 79. Annie Golden has a pretty big part of it. But re- more recently, she was a pretty substantial part in... Um, the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. Oh. She played the character who uh, named Norma, who hardly ever spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Annie Golden. Oh, my God. Wow. Lead singer of The Shirts. That's who, crazy. The first time I mentioned Elvis Costello playing CBGBs, he was opening, opening for, for The, the shirts. shirts. Oh, wow. You know? Wow. Um, there's a band called The Mumps. I've heard of The Mumps. Huge yeah. on the scene, but never really broke out of that scene and got known. Um, and, you know, so, and then you, you break off into, um, a little bit later on, you had a scene called No Wave. Oh, sure. You know, the, the, a lot of the really experimental, noisy... What's My Bloody Valentine? Is that... Uh, they're considered more shoegaze. Okay. But they're definitely influenced by this stuff. Yeah, okay. Same as Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, same as, to an extent, I'm sure Sonic Youth picked up on a lot of this stuff. Love you know, and Rockets stands out in my mind. Yeah, Love and Rockets was... Uh, they were To me, they were always more of a... Kind of more of a throwback to kind of, uh, they kind of, they were all over the I just place. remember the early days of MTV, all these bands playing, seeing these yeah. videos. Yeah. 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 Well, Love and Rockets came out of Bauhaus. Yeah. Huge, you know, yeah. probably the best band known in the world of goth. But um, so the No Wave, you had people like Lydia Lunch, another poet, um, similar in falling in the footsteps of Patti Smith. Uh, you had a band she had called Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. A guy named Glenn Branca. Anyway, they came up with that term, no wave, as a kind of a slap in the face to the term new, new wave, wave yeah. that had gotten so commercialized and so worn out. They were ready to disassociate themselves with punk rock and with the cliches of rock and roll and create their own scene, okay. which is brilliant yeah. because, you know, they did their own thing and they made it all their own. So it's just fascinating what. You know, and you mentioned the Beastie Boys being so maybe so far removed, but without all this stuff we're talking about, there would be no Beastie there Boys. would be no Beastie Boys. Hundred you know? percent, yeah. So, is that it? Oh, I oh. that was great. No, that was amazing. I I I suicide. Uh, you know, I've got all these all these bands. I've got to go do my homework on this week, and this was 
everything that I hoped it would be. Oh, good. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you chose it because it's one that I had some idea about and could get into with you. But uh, hopefully we'll do this again. Uh, so. Maybe dealer's choice every time. Okay. Or maybe we can... We can volley back and forth and have first pick uh, of it. but That sounds perfect. I really appreciate you coming down. This was awesome. This is one that I'm going to go back to a bunch of times and kind of read up and study up because I love going down these rabbit holes with oh, these bands. Oh, great. So hopefully this is uh, how other other people who are listening to this will use it too. Thank you so much for coming on, Gabe. I Thank really you. appreciate it. As Thanks always, for having it was me. a pleasure. Thank you so much.